Good morning. I want to greet each one in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And I do want to continue to be faithful as the devotions was about with priming the pump. And I hope that um, I will continue to be that. But please pray for me and the rest of the ministry as we study and preach and teach that we would continue to do that faithfully for each one of you. But each one of you can also help through teaching Sunday school, through raising up children to know the Lord. Well, I ended my last book study uh, on Galatians in November. I felt led to start a new one in uh, Hebrews. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Um, I expect this one to be longer than any of them that I've done previously, but um, I do plan to probably mix in other messages. As we look at Hebrews, though, I did want to kind of lay a foundation a little bit. Um, A lot of assumptions have been made about this book over the years. When I did some research, um, they said for the first 1,800 years of church history, uh, it was taken for granted, assumed that Paul wrote this and that he wrote it to the Hebrews. But once you look at the book itself, don't look at the name of the book at the beginning, when they went back and found some of the original writings, there actually wasn't a name Hebrews written at the top or anywhere in it. Um, So we're not exactly sure who it was written to. But unlike Romans, I believe was more written to, um, to to the Jews, also to the Gentiles, but especially the Jews. Paul touched on a lot of how God wasn't done with the Jews, but also that the gospel was open to us as Gentiles. Hebrews focuses more on coming to Christ by faith, of him being our high priest. And there's just a lot of, a lot of uh, good meat for us here in this book, so I hope it can be challenging to you. But I just want to look at some reasons why Paul may or may not have written Hebrews, as some assume and others disagree with. So reasons that he may have wrote it. Um, The closing at the end of Hebrews is similar to all of the other books written by Paul. Also, there are parallel verses between Hebrews and the writings of Paul, where Paul actually comes out and identifies himself as the author. And there are also almost identical phrases found in both Hebrews and in Paul's writings. But there are compelling reasons also that indicate that Paul may not have wrote it. Um, There are no personal salutations found in Hebrews, unlike Paul's writings, um, where he would actually salute this man, this lady, this couple. Um, You don't find that. There's a general salutation towards the end, but no direct salutation. Also, when Paul would quote from the Old Testament in other books, and obviously I'm relying on 
scholars who have researched this, because I do not know original Hebrew, I don't know Greek, that Paul would quote from the original Hebrew for the Old Testament, but the writer of Hebrews quoted the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But in all this, it doesn't, I don't think it matters whether he wrote it or not. I believe it's still God's inspired word. And I believe when you think about the differences and the similarities that we find between Hebrews and the rest of the, Paul's writings, I think it can be attributed to the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired all of it. So whether or not Paul wrote it, I still believe it's from the Holy Spirit. And I believe there's truths in here for us today as believers. But now at this point, I'd like to read the complete chapter, and then we'll go back through and start looking at each of the individual verses. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who in sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angel spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall, and they all shall wax old as it doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels saith he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So looking there at verse 1, sundry times and in divers matters. What does sundry times mean? Breaking down the definition, it means like in portions or by piecemeal, a little bit at a time. And we know that's true when we look back through all the different people who wrote different books in the Old Testament, um, that God God gave it a little at a time. He didn't just give it to one man. Um, A lot of false religions today You'll have one person come out, like in Islam, you have Muhammad, or the Mormons, you have Joseph Smith, who 
basically claim that everything comes through them. Everything, all of God's writings came through one person. But God chose not to work that way. He chose to do it through a number of different men. Um, I had to think of the different types of uh, scripture, the different types of writings that we find in the Old Testament. Some of it's history. Um, think especially of Genesis. There's just a lot of history there of things that happen. God laid out what happened. Um, he gave some of it through laws. We think more of like Leviticus and even parts of Exodus that God chose to give us his word that way. And I forgot to say, divers manners and means like in different forms. Um, not all in one format. And he gave other scripture through prophecy. We think of Daniel and parts of Isaiah. And this is how he gave us the Old Testament. And then moving on to verse 2, but with the coming of Jesus Christ, now he has um, also brought his truth to us through him. And so it changed. It was no longer being given to us through prophets. Um, the way way it was given in the Old Testament. But Jesus, we look there in verse 2, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So this was his son. It wasn't just another, a prophet, a man, a followable man that he gave it through, but he gave it through his son. And it wasn't just a son, someone he created, but it was part of the Godhead Someone who was, who not only, who is his heir of all things. I look at someone who's an heir who um, a father has given something to you. If you inherited something, that thing has now been putting, put into your control. God give, give, gave Jesus the control of this world. It seems kind of Maybe strange that God would do that when it says then at the end of verse 2, who made the worlds? Why would someone who has made the world need to be given control of it? But if we understand the place of the Father and the place of the Son, Jesus was there when the world was created. I believe he was the creator of the world. But yet, when he came in the person of Jesus Christ earth there's a sense of him giving up that control but yet God in turn gave control of the world back to him again and sometimes it's, there's, there's going to be a lot of this in Hebrews where there's parts of it that may be difficult in our human thinking to completely grasp but hopefully we can dig into it, break it apart and be able to have a greater understanding. Verse 3 says, Who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. In verse 2, when it was using the pronouns he and his, it was talking about the Father. But now in verse 3, 
the pronouns are referring, I believe, to Christ. It talks about him purging our sins and sitting down on the right hand of the majesty, and I believe that majesty would be the Father. So we have to switch gears here about who, who is talking. But we see that Jesus is not the same person, but he has all the same power of God and is a part of him. This reminded me, uh, recently I had a conversation, a couple conversations with a co-worker who had just recently left a Pentecostal church that um, not all Pentecostal churches believe this, but this one, this, this denomination in particular, believed in oneness doctrine. How many have ever heard of that term? Um, it's something I never really, before my friend from work kind of got me curious about it and looking into it, I'd never really, I'd heard the term, but I never really looked into what it meant. It's the idea that there are not three persons of God. There are not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they would say, well, we, you know, we basically, we believe the same thing. No, we don't believe in the Trinity, but we believe that Jesus Christ came to earth and died on the cross. So why would it matter if you don't believe exactly the way we teach it here at Salem? But I think it's important for us not to be caught up in some of those things. One of the most prominent people today teaching this is T.D. Jakes. I'm sure most of you have heard of him. He's popular in seminars and some different um, conferences and things in teaching. And I don't believe everything that he teaches is necessarily wrong, but this is one of the things that he is a proponent of. And you can go on in YouTube videos of him talking about this. He tries to claim that he does believe in the Trinity. When you hear him break it down, he is a oneness doctrine. Why does that matter? What's the danger of that doctrine coming into our thinking? Well, another word that goes with it is modulism, and I know that's a strange word or whatever. Not necessarily something that we have to completely understand, but it's the idea that there are different modes of God. There's the mode of the Father, there's the mode of the Son, the mode of the Spirit. But the idea is that you cannot be all three at one. They, you can't have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all being in their mode at the same time. If you listen to T.D. Jakes, one of the analogies he uses is ice, water, and steam. He says, well, you know, it's all the same product, right? But it can't be ice and water at the same time, and it can't be water and steam at the same time. It sounds a little bit convincing, but it's dangerous to think. So basically, if you flesh it out, it means when Jesus Christ came to earth and came as a baby, the Father was no longer in heaven because there's only one mode at a time. And then when the Spirit is expressed, there can't be the Father and the Son. And right away when I was talking to this person at work, I, I knew there were scriptures where it talks about Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. And I found quite a few of them. Um, turn with me to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. 
1 Peter 3, verse 22. And if we look at the end of verse 21, it says, By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason we need to see that, then verse 22 starts, Who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. I asked this friend, what, how do you explain this verse then? How can it be that there is only one person at a time? And yet here it clearly says that Jesus is going to sit on the right hand of God. Well, they explain that away by saying that, well, if you're right hand, it's like you're a part of. But there's, when you think of someone being on your right hand, you're, it's a different person, it's a different entity. And um, it's something that is, in our human thinking, hard to um, hard to understand. How can the Trinity work? How can there be the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Three persons, but one being. And that may be something we never completely grasp in our human thinking. But it is important to recognize the different persons of the Godhead. But one thing that my uh, oneness doctrine people will talk will bring up is the exactly same argument that Muslims bring up that we believe in many gods if we believe in Jesus Christ, the Spirit, and the Father. And the term that T.D. Jakes believes is like, is, or the term that he used in one of his messages was um, that you believe in a committee of gods. But I only believe in one God, but I believe that he has three persons, and that's important to recognize. The Old Testament, if the Jews will say there was only one God in the Old Testament. But when you break down the different meanings of the different words used for God in the Old Testament, and even in Genesis, it uses the word we at times when referring to God. I don't believe the Jews fully understood it. God didn't make it completely clear at that time to them. But to understand that, yes, there's one God that we are serving. We're not serving multiple gods. It's not like the Mormons where we can become gods, where we can just, there's just unlimited amount of gods. There's one God, but there are three persons. And the person of the Son of Jesus Christ came died on this died came and lived on this earth died on the cross rose again but that didn't mean there wasn't a father in heaven because it talks about in the garden that he prayed to his father and um and like i said at times it's hard to understand but i think it's important for us to think about these things so we're not deceived into believing something that is not scriptural you don't have to turn with me, but Romans chapter 8 also says, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ It, it is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And I am thankful for that today. I believe each one of you are too. That we don't believe that it's just the Father or the Son at once but rather that Jesus Christ is standing on the right hand of the Father today 
interceding for us when we're going through difficult times, when we're struggling, when it comes to us coming before him to confess our sins, that he is there to be our, our advocate before the Father. Moving on to uh, back to Hebrews chapter 1, picking up at verse 4. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, this is back now referring to the Father, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, Let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, and of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angel spirits and his ministers of flame of fire? This is confusing, and this is where people can get the wrong idea. Um, when we look at verse 6 there, it's not referring to Jesus being created. It says, first begotten. This is talking about when God introduced him or welcomed him into the world as a baby. This is not that this is not the point of when he was created, and it's very important for us to recognize this. This is when the when God first introduced Jesus to the Jewish people and to the rest of the world. But it makes it clear here that just as I believe there are angels, not the fallen angels, but the other angels that are in heaven that have never sinned, they did not have the ability to come to earth and to die for our sins because they were not a part of who God, not part of the deity of God. And so it's, it's critical that we understand who Jesus is, that he was a part of God, the Son of God. And it makes the writer here makes it clear, the Father, the Son, the separation, both persons of the same God. Now moving on to verse 8. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Why does it use the analogy of a scepter? What does a scepter signify? Turn with me to Esther chapter 5. far as I know, we don't um, see kings with scepters today. Years, millennia ago, thousands of years ago, kings would um, have a scepter. Esther chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. And it was so, when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, 
that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, queen of Esther? What is thy request? It shall be even given thee to half of the kingdom. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, and let the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. The scepter signified complete power, complete control, even the power of life and death. If the king did not hold out the scepter to the person that was coming before him, that person would be put to death. Now, not necessarily every kingdom was this way or every king was this way, but we see this true here in this story. And I believe that's what it's talking about, that the son, Jesus, has a scepter. Now, it's a scepter of righteousness. Jesus is not wielding it as a power-hungry tyrant, but rather a scepter of righteousness, one that does have the power over life and death, but seeks righteousness from its subjects, not just control. Moving on to verse 9. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. The definition here of the oil with the oil of gladness is like exaltation. God exalted Jesus. The Father exalted Jesus in giving him control over the earth. But that it's one of of joy, of gladness, not one of power and lust of power. And in the closing, in verses 10 to 12, once again it's say, spelling out that Jesus created the world. He created the solar systems. But yet someday they will be gone. But he will still exist. He's an eternal being. He does not have an end. His kingdom does not have an end. And in the last two verses there, once again, spelling out that no one compares to Jesus. There's no angel, no person. But to, verse 13, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. We come before Christ. We need to come before Christ recognizing who he is, that he has ultimate power and control over this earth. But yet he's not holding that, wielding that to harm us, to hurt us, but rather to draw us to himself. This chapter kind of ends in a, uh, kind of rolls right into the next one. So it's a little hard to know how to close this message out. But to be challenged, I hope, with the idea of who Jesus is with being the Son of God, of recognizing that it is it was part of God's plan. And even though the Jews didn't recognize him for who he was, and even though it, it did seemed to contradict the Old Testament for what the Jews understood of there being one God. 
I think they recognized that the, there was a spirit of God, but they didn't recognize it as being three parts. But Hebrews, as we go through it and study it, we will see that explained in different ways and hopefully help us to grow. So I hope this can be a challenge to you and we will continue later on.